What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Atlanta, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome to a special Saturday edition of America's Favorite Sports Writers. I am now joined, as I usually am, by Bob Silverman up there in the Northeast, maybe at a beach, maybe back in New York. I don't know where he is. Bob, good afternoon. How are you? Hi, Chase. I'm off the beach. It took a while to get to the beach. There was a lot of driving, but (laughs) I'm back now in Brooklyn, but I did go to a beach. Are you tan? How tan is Bob Silverman at the moment? Just I got bronzing? a bad. I two weeks ago I also went to a beach and I got a very very bad sunburn, which is weird because I never get sunburned. So I put on like I look like Marlon Brando on the island of Doctor Moreau. I was covered in draped in like white linens and had like zinc oxide all over myself and sunglasses. I made sure to really load up. So I, like I, I have I've received a, a light golden browning. Mm, there you go. Um, have you spent upwards of $500,000 to write for a website in the last week? No. Okay. No, I haven't. Okay. I've heard of someone who's done that. Andrew, good yeah. afternoon up there in the Northwest. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm just getting this image of when Bob said that he looked like Marlon Brando. I'm thinking... Godfather, uh, on the waterfront. No, Island of the classic film, the Island, the the third remake of the Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah, I was going to say, because like there's been a few, uh, there's been a few versions of that. So I'm glad that we got a, uh, got a specific, uh, version. The the Brando Island Dr. Murrow is a bad movie for those who haven't seen it. Um, For one, there was a clause in Brando's contract insisting that he could only stand for a very small percentage of the shoot, whether on camera or off. He had a sitting clause, which meant many scenes had to be oriented around the fact that Brando didn't want to stand up. So there's that. Um... Also, the guy who made it was a bit of an auteur, and he had this sort of fanciful idea for a parable about the about modern society, and the studio just stole the movie away from him, and it ended up being a, a colossal mishmash of bad ideas and, and executive overreach. Um, if you read Taffy, uh, Taffy Ackner's profile of, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, the, the, the the pretty boy actor's name I can't remember all of a sudden who's in the Island of Dr. Moreau. Come on, Chase, help me out. I don't know this one. I don't know. I'm Hall- looking at it right now. Val Kilmer? He, he, Val Kilmer, thank you. Okay. Val Kilmer also has a small role in this. Um, and he evidently, like, he, he discusses it in a recent New York Times profile, which is also quite brilliant. And I suggest you read the profile of Val Kilmer to find out what he's up to these days. Um, but... In any case, the movie was a colossal disaster. Meanwhile, there are many scenes of Brando wearing just many, many yards of white linen, and his face is covered in zinc oxide and sunglasses. Also, uh, the little person who played Brando's clone mm-hmm. eventually became a part of sports history. I think his name was Nelson De La Rosa. Correct me, uh, Andrew. You're looking at the IMDb page. Is that the name for the for the the the, the actor who played? Brando's botched clone. 
Yeah, so I'm looking at that and I'm like, oh my, I was like, where do I know him from? And yeah, it's the little person who Pedro Martinez and the 04 yeah. Red Sox were carrying around, which adds yeah. another layer of weirdness to... Yes, Pedro Martinez <laughs> thought this little person was a good luck charm and insisted that he travel with the team and wear a Red Sox uniform and he he does like the the Pedro Nelson De La Rosa relationship soured. Is that his name, Nelson De La Rosa? Yeah, yeah. Soured after the World Series and after Pedro signed with the Mets, and uh, and he he died uh, shortly after um, the Sox won the series. And it was very sad because like Pedro treated him like basically a mascot, and then dumped him once he left. Boston. It, it's a very sad story. Well, that happened. In any right. case, let's I transition. <laughs> I went to the beach. <laughs> oh my god, Bob! It's beautiful on a Saturday afternoon. My parents are coming into town. I very nice. Yeah, and you're over here just like let's try and make this as morose as humanly possible. What the hell, Bob? We'll get to Tom Seaver yeah. when you're when you were watching him in your late twenties when you're hopping from bar to bar and I I I was not <laughs> one, I'm not that old. I'm not old enough to have watched Tom Seaver <laughs> pitch. Fuck all y'all. <laughs> Screw you guys. Oh, I'm just I, gonna... like my only memory of Tom Seaver is watching like the eighty six series and seeing him look pouty on the bench. That's it. That's it. <laughs> It's great. Well, um, I'm going to try and not get distracted by this Marshall-Easter Kentucky game, which just an absolute banger out of the gate. Marshall getting an early touchdown. Oh, that's right. There's some, there's some college football today. There is. All day long, sir. And Desmond Howard predicted Cincinnati to be one of the four playoff teams before, uh, before these games today. So nature is healing. He's not Go wrong. Are, oh, Andrew. Andrew. I'm not saying that Cincinnati, I'm not saying that Cincinnati reaches the playoff, but in a year where two of your five power five teams will not be in it, you're going to have shenanigans and a and if if the, if an undefeated power, uh, group of five team goes undefeated, which is you know basically saying like very redundant. Good job, Andrew. Um, yeah, no. Undefeated group of five team has such an argument to reach the playoff this year that, yeah, Cincinnati goes undefeated. It's kind of hard to not give them that shot. Um, I'd rather see Cincinnati than Central Florida because I'm tired of Central Florida people complaining about uh, <laughs> the, their, well, we want a shot at the playoff. No, you're like, who, who did you play again? Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, go away. Flame uh, so, immediately from wow. Andrew. Wow, some anti-UCSF bias. Yikes. UCSF. I, I, I'm, I'm, I honestly, I respect group of five schools, but I'm sorry. The system is unfair towards you. It's always been unfair towards you. This I is don't understand what they're playing for. Gets a trophy. I've always um, wondered like what group of five schools are playing for because like I've – I've been pushing for just a different playoff for them. Like who would not yeah. want to watch a different playoff with the group of five teams, like have a, a title game against like BYU versus, um, I don't know, UCF as an appetizer to the, the other playoff. Like, I don't think any group of five school Didn't would actually Dante hate it. Go to UCF? He Did sure did. Dante yes. Dang. Okay. That's what I thought. Is he the yeah. best UCF player of all time? I think so. I think it's got to be done. Yeah, you you could make a case, yeah. I'm trying to think who else even fits. so good for a minute there. Who was that running back who ran for like a billion yards in the early 2000s when they were bad with O'Leary? He's a little running back, I swear. UCF had like one of the weirder, like all-time great running backs for a couple years in college, and he didn't do anything in the pros. I know who you're talking about, and uh, the the name escapes me. If you look at his numbers... I highly encourage people to really get in the weeds here. Look at this dude's numbers, but they ran him into the ground. He this had like a Jim Weber ask segment, if ever there was one. <laughs> um, oh, Blake Bortles went to UCF. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, Blake Bortles absolutely That's... went to UCF. Uh, um, hold on. I'm, I'm on football reference, profootballreference.com. I'm looking for it. Um, find this running back. Um, um, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking right now. Um, he played it. Uh, he played for the Lions. Let me see here. Kevin Smith. It's Kevin Smith. Oh, that's right. Oh, Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith. His college Kevin numbers Smith. are bonkers. Oh, and Latavius Murray. Latavius Murray went to UCF. I had that's no idea. True. Kevin Smith. Huh. I want to pull up Smith. his numbers because his college numbers are just bonkers. He had like a yeah. He had 450 carries and ran for 2,500 yards and averaged 5.7 yards per carry and ran for 30 touchdowns in his last season at UCF. What the hell? Like, they gave him 905 carries for free. 905 carries. He was running against, he was running against like pencil next poli sci majors, though. Come on. Like, it's not like he was, like he was going up against like Alabama's front four or anything. I don't care. Running backs, 95 carries, 2,500 yards Kevin one Smith season. Fraud. Kevin Smith is a fraud. That is my <laughs> take. Kevin Smith's fraud stats. Fraud stats for Kevin Smith. Speaking of frauds. It's like, it's like all those Boise State running backs who like rack up Tecmo Bowl numbers and then never do shit in the NFL. Wow. Fraud. Wow, Bob just letting it fly today. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of liking yeah. this, uh, this, this salty version. College football, Bob Silverman. It's very right rare here. that I get it. That I get it. That I get my college football takes out because I don't really watch much college football. So that's why I'm able to have loud and wrong opinions. There you go. Because I, I don't do any actual research or thinking. Speaking go of, on. what's the first subject? Speaking of loud, wrong frauds. <laughs> The President of the United States um, called the Big Ten. To- <laughs> that was a hell, a, a hell of a segue, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, man. Transition, that was smooth. I like it. He called the Big Ten, and um, as you and I and Andrew are all very familiar uh, with Clay Kravis, um, who apparently, it just of course, was in on uh, them calling the Big Ten and Kevin Warren. I mean, <clears throat> duh, of course this happened. Of course this is how this played out. Of course this is where we are in the discourse. I, what? I, I don't know what to make of this other than this is stupid. <laughs> like, what the... F- like, we're just living in a... I, in a really don't, weird don't time. Don't go clown world. Yeah. Don't go full honkler on me. Come on, man. Like, we don't want to get into, like, honkler discourse now. What is um, this? What is this? It's, I mean, I've been trying to figure out, you know, and and Sports Business Journal has some reporting on this. And like, as far as I can tell, you know, now that all of the sort of standard brand Republicans have, have, have kind of washed their way out of the Trump administration, the whole thing is being run by a bunch of guys named Kevin and um, possibly Skyler. And so... Yeah, those are outkick listeners. So of course they would they would try to hook them up. I mean, like Andrew Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani's very large fail son is working as <laughs> who you may remember from acting like a like a, a very excitable large toddler during uh, a public event for his father is now helping to run the government. And so Andrew, who who I believe went to Duke on a golf scholarship, which is just a sentence with reams of information about the person contained therein. Um, you know, like the really funny thing is, Craig Travis, you know, was was very sort of like it's one of those wonderful. And someone who's done some reporting on Clay in the past, he was he he. The way he the way he says things that are just patently untrue is, is really fascinating to me. He's been very sort of defiant that the fact that he was sitting in on both the planning sessions, according to Sports Business Journal, and the post phone call conversations to talk about how it went with the administration, and yet at the same time claim that none of this is political. 
because he just wants the football back is I don't even I don't even know like if I were actually having a conversation with Clay Travis how I would possibly begin to say like no 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 if you are advising an administration that is by definition a political act you are not a political actor which is fine if that's what you want to be um but you can't just suddenly like wipe your hands of it and now go back to being a middle-aged shock jock who claims he screams about MSESPN. Like, in any reasonably functioning democracy, the idea of Clay Travis actually sitting in making policy would be treated as a bad joke that would get laughed out of the writer's room for any sketch comedy. But that's not where we are right now. Um, I wish I could say I was, you know, I was actually surprised by that. Like, Clay Travis helping to set up the phone call, that surprised Like, I did not think we had reached that nadir as far as a, a Western democracy has gone. Because Clay Travis is not qualified to be in that room. I mean, granted, he's probably just qualified as all, like, as Andrew Giuliani or any of the dudes named Skyler, but he's not qualified to be making any decisions at all. Who's it's, also advising it's, Kevin it's, Warren it's, to take this call? Why did he think this would go over well and this was a good idea? Who is in his corner telling him, yeah, definitely do that? Somebody in the Big Ten um, office has to has The PR to. consultant who yeah. the Big Ten hired to help them deal with the fallout of getting, you know, of, of, of angry Big Ten fans who have been screaming about the decision to cancel the games. Like, whatever, it doesn't cost them anything. It's not actually the worst. Like, look, me calling Clay Travis King Cowboy dipshit again <laughs> is, is not going to harm the chances of college football being played. For an entire swath of Big Ten fans, like being able to put out that the president and he had a productive call is actually not the worst thing to do PR-wise. It won't bring back football any sooner, but in terms of getting people to stop screaming at it, getting like Ohio State moms to stop screaming at him, I don't think it's the dumbest thing you know a, a pro sports commissioner has ever done, or amateur sports commissioner has ever done. Andrew, go for it, man. I'm, I can't yell about about. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, yeah, just go ahead and tag me in because uh, first off, yeah. So Clay Travis, that's the last person you want. Uh, being be running middleman on this, um, and it's funny because like when I saw the report that it came out that the president and the Big Ten commissioner had a conversation, I was like, okay, that's not good because you know what's <laughs> going to come from it, and then you go even further, and it's like, oh, Clay Travis was the middleman on this, and it's like, oh, so this mission was uh, fucked before it even started, so that's awesome. Um, yeah, so here's here's my issue with the whole thing. If Kevin Warren wants to take a call from the president of the United States, fine, so be it. You can do that. It's it's a free country. The issue is, and we've seen it with this president before. And once again, this isn't political. This isn't you know taking one side or the other. This is just fact, and we know that the president will essentially. Take your words and take whatever you do, he will spin it and say, oh, this is how it really went when we all know that probably isn't true. So I was worried with Kevin Warren that, OK, you know, he he, he says what he needs to say. And then the president basically says, oh, yeah, he's going to bring it back and. Essentially, that's what happened when when Trump basically said, "Oh yeah, we're gonna have Big Ten football." Yeah, and the one I, yard line, I think, was right. Yeah. And, and so, and and essentially, I'm looking at this as okay. And I actually had a tweet. I was like, "Oh, that's that's interesting." And then somebody was trying to explain it, or somebody was asking me, "Well, how come he didn't uh, ask the Pac-12 about it?" And I said, "Look at the teams in the in the Big Ten." Look at where they're located. This is all a political ploy because the one oh, yeah, person in the first business journal, yeah, there was like Biden has been running ads showing empty stadiums in Michigan and Ohio. It's really he does not 
it's not like the president is watching game day this afternoon. No. He does not care about sports other than the, the fact that he's impressed by the fact that the men are large. <laughs> like, right. that clearly is for him. Like, well, in the large men. Right. But well, he doesn't care. Yeah. No, he, he, he doesn't care at all. And, and, and the funny thing about all of this is, okay, so Larry Scott, he's on game day this morning. And he's basically like, yeah, um, we would like to play, but you know, and essentially named off all the reasons, which Kevin Warren, Big Ten commissioner, named off all the reasons. And so right. it, 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 it had me cracking up because all of these, uh, all, all of these, you know, not even commissioners, but the athletic directors and school administrators, they're basically saying, oh, well, we wanted to play, but we were, but the Big Ten over, you know, the Big Ten overruled us. Big Ten commissioner overruled us. So they're throwing all of this on him when essentially none of the athletic directors had a vote. It was the presidents and chancellors who decided in an eight to, in a, what was it? Um, it was 12 to 11 three to, vote or something. Yeah, 12 to three. 12 yeah. to three. Yeah, essentially overwhelming odds that, yeah. oh, yeah, we don't want to play. And so you have all of these schools who wanted to play, most notably Nebraska and Ohio State. You have Nebraska media trying to basically pitch the idea that, oh, we wanted to play, but everybody else didn't want to. So it's it's their fault. And it's like, guys, guys, this is a global pandemic like. <laughs> there are sacrifices that need to be made. And it's like, you, you know, it's like when you go out with your friends, it's like, oh, um, well, they're all going out and I can't go out. It's like, do you really want to go out? Because it might not end well for them. Like, like we're I happy mean, like- falls back, but the big, the um, big 12 SEC and ACC, we don't know if this is actually going to work. So do you really want to step out there and act like everything's okay when even they're, you know, managing this very, uh, very trepidly? Can I give you uh, some insight from the front lines here in Tennessee real quick about this this call? Yeah, so let's put on in good old Tennessee. Okay. Because I think this is important, where the what's going on in Twitter is very different than what's going on. It just pe- we're in different areas of the country where like people are not logging on to Twitter.com and scrolling through their feed and actually parsing through what's what's being echoed on. Twitter. You mean with like healthy normal people and not freakazoid weirdos? Yes. What not weirdos are doing? Exactly. Okay, cool. Go and on. I think it's very important to have both in your life. So I. <laughs> I was out last night getting food, getting dinner, mask on, all that kind of stuff, and someone asked me about, because the Big Ten stuff came on TV, and the whole bar was talking about how weak Kevin Warren and the Big Ten now look, and how embarrassing this is for the Big Ten, that they they made this huge mistake. Look at what the SEC is doing. Look at what the ACC is doing. Like, we're doing this, baby, and you look like a, just a weak joke by taking this call at Trump. So like when I was talking about like the just why you take this call, it's like we know how this goes every single time. Like I knew how this was gonna look, no matter how productive or whatever. It, it was a trap. Like someone should have been in his ear is like this is only going to make you look bad. It doesn't matter if you're going into it with um this idea that it's gonna be a normal conversation because nothing is normal. With this administration, nothing is normal with these calls. You have to look at everything cynically. You just do. And he did not and he took this call, he got listened to his advisors, and everyone's just laughing. Like these people are just like, Yeah, this is why we're voting for him again. It's because he just called and made this ploy and just been like, See, you're an idiot. You should have done what the southern states are doing. Like this was something that actually like got Southern sports fans excited about November. It was just, like that is something <laughs> which scares the shit out of me. But they look at it as like, Yep, Trump just imposed his will. And it's like, nothing even happened. Nothing's changed. It was the biggest waste of time. Nothing is going to change, probably. But because he took this call and because Trump was the one who called him and was like, do this, it made him look like the guy who wants to save football and Kevin Warren looks like the guy who hates America. So congratulations on that. Yeah, I could be wrong about it being a half-decent PR move. 
I'm looking at the wrong take by me. I, I can be swayed on that being just like a bad. I, I mean, unfortunately, I think the problem is not to get into some game theory, but like if the Big Ten commissioner refused to take the call, you can bet that would leak too. And I have a feeling that would look worse. I think it would look better. I feel like he may. Do you guys mind if I you guys mind if I say something real quick? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. And this is because, because I think that there are, and I hate playing the race card here, but there are some there are some elements there, um, and and I'm. Once again, like I'm not I don't want to play the race card, but there are obvious elements of Kevin Warren being seen as a weak black man in power, a black man in power. But he's weak. He doesn't have power. And so when you're seeing because all of these conference commissioners who have decided not to play um, like Larry Scott has basically been, you know, absolved of any type of scorn from anybody. And I will also argue at the same time, Kevin Warren should have been more uh, forthright in saying, you know, okay, this is why we aren't going to play. This is why we aren't doing this. And so I, I don't think that he and the Big Ten have handled it as well as they should have, especially when um, and I also put it on the the school administrators who had a hand in the vote, explain why they voted that way. Um, and so now all of a sudden uh, you're, you're seeing elements of of a quote unquote weak black man. Um, and once again, like, I'm not trying to make it about race, but you can definitely tell in some of the things that, you know, some pro Big Ten media members are saying and and basically kind of putting the blame on Warren. And then all of a sudden he has this conversation with Trump and it's like, Okay, you're putting this man in a no-win situation if he takes this call. And so I I wonder if if if, if the commissioner of the Big 10 were white, would he be getting the same scorn and same vitriol as Kevin Warren is? And once again, like I'm like I'm saying Warren deserves a slice of it because he wasn't as forthright as he maybe should have been. Uh, but at the same time, if Jim Delaney's still commissioner and still makes this move, is he getting the amount of scorn that I've been seeing uh, from people on social media and parents angry and upset? And, you know, you have, uh, once again, you have some some members of the college football media going after Warren when essentially Larry Scott was like, uh, yeah, we aren't playing either. Well, I think Larry like, Scott's oh, point okay. is important because I wonder if they switch roles and Larry Scott's the one in charge of the Big Ten and Kevin Warren's out in the Vac-12, if it goes the exact same way. Um, I think the other combina- the other part of this, and I think the race part is important and definitely at play here, but I think it's also the lack of experience. So like he's getting, Oh, absolutely. Him not being a college football guy has been brought up a lot. So I see that where people are like, he just doesn't get it. And Jim Delaney wouldn't have canceled that quickly. So people are, are, they just believe that Delaney would not have operated the same way as Warren did and that he's in over his head. So that part plays into the race thing as well. It's like he's in over his head because he just, he's with the Vikings for 15 years. He's an NFL guy. He doesn't understand what he's doing. Like all that kind of stuff. Like that is what I've seen is like the lack of capital he has and just the inexperience in that people really think that he's just like this leftist political 
guy who is just who hates football. No, I'm like, I'm like, you know, look, if you want to say that a commissioner hates football, I think the conversation is beginning and end with Rob Manfred or hates the sport. Rather. Right. But like, <laughs> um, I think, like, obvious. I, I think I think you're right, Andrew. I think obvious. Look. Like race, and it's part of the air we breathe in America, and to and to and to not see a racial component to this, I think would be making a category error. How much, you know, I, I, I it's, it's almost impossible to say, but like, obviously, it's playing a role. I think. I mean, look, honestly, my opinion is it's like the NCAA should have. I mean, granted. Given the NCAA's nebulous authority, it would have they didn't actually able to do this, but they should have gotten together all of the Power Five conferences and made some kind of uniform decision so that each specific conference wasn't suddenly left to fend for themselves. Let alone each individual school trying to figure out an ad hoc test, testing method amidst the global pandemic. Like, if the NCAA is going to be good for anything aside from accepting TV money, it should have been this which is to say, like, nope, nothing's happening. Everyone agrees. We're all on the same page. Moving on. Not a good few months for federalism, I don't think. No. (laughs) Well, Bob, you make a good point, because I actually wrote a column about this uh, a few weeks ago, like around mid-August, and it was like – you, the NCAA had a golden opportunity. Their biggest moneymaker is the NCAA tournament in March. Right. You don't have – the women's tournament you don't have the men's tournament you don't have any spring tournaments at all so all that lost revenue i would have been on the phone that week with every power five commissioner trying to figure out okay college football is coming like we have to get in front of this right away and you basically just kick the can down the road you're you're waiting for other things to happen so you can react. You can't be reactive in these situations. You got to be proactive. And now we're at a we're at a point where, you know, if 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 I'm Mark Emmert and I'm seeing all of these things going on, and maybe this is just me, but I I got to take as, as the leader. I've got to take the bullet and say, you know what, put this on me. Don't blame this commissioner from this conference or that commissioner well, from that Mark conference. Emmerich? But it won't happen <laughs> because Mark Emmert's a complete idiot. But you've got to you've got to take some of the blame, or at least say, hey, we thought we could. We thought other influences, i.e., government officials, you know, science would help slow things down, but we were wrong. But now they're just kind of shrugging See, their shoulders. Like we're going to leave it up to everybody else. And it's like, no, you idiots. This is, this, this is why we're in this situation because you guys didn't do anything. I don't think it's, Emory. Well, I, mean, I think it's actually the sec who should have stood up. And I think what would have helped Warren a lot is the eighties looking at, or the, the, the president's looking out for each other and the conference commissioner's looking right. out for each other. So I think if Greg Sankey, who has what just much more pull than Mark Emmert does, and he has a lot more power and he has a lot more, a lot more people are listening to him. And if he had come out and said like, Hey, look, Kevin Warren did what he th- thought was best. He's trying to protect his players. He's operating. He has his reasons. The PAC 12 has theirs. Like if they had all just come out collectively and just been like, look, we may have different opinions on what to do this fall, but like, there, I don't ever doubt for a second that Warren is not ultimately looking out for what's best for his guys. We just have a difference of opinion. That's yeah, okay. like, I mean, the, the, idea, the idea that that Kevin Warren is operating as some rogue political operative mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, rig the election. That's what George Soros tells us. People forget yeah, that, Bob. Well, that is part of it. That guy still hasn't paid me. He owes me money for rigging world news <laughs> prices. So, like, it, it's, I mean, the, the problem with the NCAA taking any kind of collective action here is that eventually what they're going to run up against is the fact that 
because none of these players are being compensated fairly for their work. And if they were actual laborers with a union representing them, you could have figured out an agreement where they could have maybe done their work safely or chosen or not. But because, like the, the specter of amateurism is hanging over all of this. And the NCAA and the, the commissioners and all the, you know, the schools, like, because they can't fracture that illusion that these are student athletes and not employees, and not incredibly powerful employees and not, you know, wealth generating employees, they are really hamstrung in terms of what they can do because if, because they have to sort of what they would have should have needed to do is say, actually, no, all of our students are, are going to be getting educated from home right now because this thing will spread on campus, except for these employees who we will figure out a way to protect to the best of our abilities. But they can't go there because they're terrified of losing that giant cash cow. So I think it's impossible to look at any of the NCAA decisions without considering that giant sort of Damocles that is hanging over every commissioner and the NCAA's head right now. Well, let's leave it there and move to a happier yeah. note. Um, Steve Nash, with no experience, got a head coaching job <laughs> in Brooklyn. Wow, a soccer-loving hipster is, is is got a job in Brooklyn. I'm so stunned. <laughs> How surprising! It's it's Go good. On. You love to see it. Yeah, I um, um Steve yeah. Nash. I I get some thoughts on Steve Nash. Steve Nash, look, there again. We're, we're it is going to get back into a question of race because there are a lot of similarly. There is a gigantic pool of very qualified black assistants who are passed over for this job. Does that mean Steve Nash? cannot succeed at this job or does not deserve this job. No, it certainly doesn't. But for, you know, like Jacques Vaughn, who dragged a completely injury and Corona racked team to competitiveness over those final 12 bubble games, it does seem like he got the shaft. Like, I get it. It's really cool that Steve Nash got a job. I'm going to enjoy watching even what Steve Nash does. But, uh, you know, there are, like there for for everyone who who sees this as yet another example of you know of a privilege they're not wrong that doesn't mean like it's one of those things where it's like no he did not get the job because he's white um he got the job because he's you know a one of the greatest point guards of all time and he's and best those guys often Durant. get jobs and he's best friends with Kevin like in good bets with Kevin Durant which certainly helps um so, yeah, he may do a great job. Like, Jason Kidd looked like a really good coach for a hot minute there when he got hired, you know, with no previous head coaching experience. Steve Kerr did the same. Derek Fisher was different. Um, Wait, hold on. Derek but, Fisher was different? But, hold on, Bob. Do you want to go down 15 minutes of the triangle with Derek Fisher? No, no, okay. no. <laughs> I thought Derek Fisher was I thought Derek Fisher was going to be a good coach. My favorite story of the Derek Fisher is not the one where he got into a, a – a fight with Matt Barnes over hooking up with Matt Barnes's ex-girlfriend or wife. I forget which it was. My, my, my favorite sort of the Derek Fisher era was the rumors, none of which were ever confirmed that one Derek Fisher was hitting on Tim Hardaway's ex-girlfriend while they, he was coaching him. And two would sometimes lose focus during games by telling us like various MSG employees to pass a note to an attractive woman in the stand. What? Like Derek Fisher getting, yeah, that was totally unfounded. I have no idea if it's true. It appeared in some sketchy blogs. Could be complete malarkey, but that was the story. Um, I like the idea of Derek Fisher taking a great deal of James Dolan money and then using it be, like to to try to chat up attractive ladies. That to me is a good <laughs> and cool story. Good that Lord. to me is awesome. Yeah. So in any case, uh, whatever. It's like Steve Nash coaching a team is fun. I, I like it, and I understand why. Like it's upsetting <laughs> here and now. That's that's my uh, my Steve Nash take. Right. I you know I am. At first, I was like, oh, they're just passing up, you know, a, another qualified black man. It, honestly, I'm not taking that route but because you know you can do whatever the issue that i have is 
in the lead up to it and why it's so surprising is if you had told me two weeks, maybe, you know, even 10 days ago, oh, Steve Nash is going to be the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. I would have been like, on what? On on a video game? Cool. I'm like, kind of weird, but I'd be down. Um, But what you were hearing is, are they going to try and bring Pop to Brooklyn? I, I thought that was yeah. a pie-in-the-sky, stupid did you see, idea. Did you see Popovich's house is on sale on Willow? Makes you think. Is it, it really? That is. Yes, it is. He's got a lovely home. There's a wine cellar. Um, there's some very lovely uh, Mexican uh, tile in the kitchen. Um, his, his home is on sale. He may just be selling his home. It doesn't mean right. he's necessarily moving to team. And and I think that he is in the twilight of his career. Maybe he's, sure. you know, coaching for another two years max. Um, so, like, I get it. You know, he wants to wrap up his career coaching in New York. I didn't buy it for a second. But what you were hearing was, okay, Ty Lu. he interviewed for the job. But what was being pushed out by NBA media, New York media, and all this one came to Jock Vaughn. It was like, Oh, he did a great job in. Oh, he interviewed well too. And you're like, okay, uh, J- Jock Vaughn just might take 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 the role. And then to basically push that narrative out there as basically as a smokescreen to hire Steve Nash, that's where I had issues. Uh, it is weird again, that he's like, staying on as like a lead assistant, right? Because usually and generally. It could and maybe you should Jacques have been. Jacques Vaughn got cucked? Is that cuck? Jacques Vaughn? Is that what you're saying? You're calling I, him? I, I, I mean, I wouldn't put it in those words, but <laughs> it's, it's, it, to, to me, it was pretty frustrating to watch in terms of, okay, if you're going to make this move, then you're going to keep Jacques Vaughn on as an assistant when clearly he showed you in, in in the bubble that yeah i can put this team together and we can we can win games you know Karis Levert uh you know came alive like Peter Frampton in 76 which is you know fine if you're a Nets fan uh, um uh, i know you're welcome uh but at the same time why not just like he did enough to apparently warrant an interview and you know the the news coming out of it was he interviewed well he did such a great job and then you don't give him the role you're basically just like like i said use him as a smoke screen i think steve nash could be okay as a head coach i mean he's got a four-year deal to me it's either if he's a, if he is a success in New York and it doesn't have to be championships, it doesn't have to mean, you know, going, you know, win, winning the Eastern Conference. It it doesn't have to result in that. If he's a if he is a successful coach, he either finishes out his deal or he gets that contract extended. That's how you can I think that's how we can gauge it, but it's a bold move and I think it'll work out because, you know, you have KD and Kyrie there. But if it doesn't and he doesn't, you know, last the entire deal or he finds somewhere else within that four years. Yeah, you're looking pretty dumb. I we talked about this in this podcast a couple weeks ago where I I've always thought this was not a very. Intriguing job, like the prospect of coaching just immediate contention in Brooklyn with this group, with this collection of personalities that like, I don't think this was all that intriguing of a job. That's why Jock Vaughn was like the favorite. And like Mark Jackson's name was thrown in there where it's just like, I don't think a lot of coaches wanted this job. And I think that's like the under talked about part of this is that it takes a special type of personality to want to coach Katie and Kyrie. And also know that when you take this job year one, you're supposed to win the Eastern conference. Like that is the expectation year one. Like this is, all kinds of warning, just warning signs taking this job. And I don't, yeah. I don't know why people are expecting the Nets to contend next year. I really don't know why. I mean, I guess they're all expecting that Kevin Durant is back to normal. And if Kevin Durant is what he was two yeah, years ago, they should win the East. That's, 
that there's like one guy. I mean, granted, modern sports medicine has greatly evolved over the last two decades, but there's been one guy who's had that injury who's come back to pretty much the same level he was before, and that was Dominique Wilkins. Like this inch, that that Achilles injury will take a couple of miles per hour off any athlete. Like that that's a that's a tough injury to return to peak form from for anybody. Man, I mean like Kevin Durant at eighty five or ninety percent of his peak value is still about at the same place as, you know, like then he's Dirk Nowitzki. And he's just like a killer scoring forward and facilitator and, you know, and, and not a great defender. Like that's, that's still, that's still a player you can win a, that's 2011 Dirk Nowitzki and you can absolutely win a title build around that player. We have never seen a year when Kyrie Irving has been completely healthy. Like anything else you want to say about Kyrie Irving? Um, and I find Kyrie Irving at times infuriating and at times fascinating. Like, Kyrie Irving has never been healthy now 27 this year, I think. God, is he, is he that? He was trapped in 2011 when he was 18, so yeah, he's 27. Um, they've got that. Then you've got two players who need the ball to be effective in Dinwiddie and Levert. And then you've got a couple of good catch-and-shoot guys in, in Joe Harris. Uh, and um, you've got you know a nice rim runner in Jerry Allen. I think that's maybe the third best team in the East at peak value. That to me is not a contender. That's like a second round playoff team. It's weird to me that people think they're going to contend. Even well, the East if is weird, Durant man. goes back to get swept out of the now. second round right now. Like who knows I know. what the looks like. I know. It's very weird. It's really weird. I mean, but to me, like, the, like even with this weird Bucks flame out now, um, like the Raptors are better, the Bucks are better than the than the Nets at full strength. Um, the Celtics, healthy, are better. There are a lot of see the Celtics teams are the only that I, think I would say are I would, better. They're the only team I would pick against a healthy Nets team next year, probably. I would still take the Raptors. They're so well coached, and they all you can have so the Raptors. Well you can have that. It's all fake. The Raptors are fake. They are the um, the Raptors are not fake. fake. Here, here's the team I want to – I would pour – and I'm a Celtics fan, a huge Celtics fan. Here's the team I do not want to see in the East for the next two to three years, and maybe even further than that, Miami. They've got yeah, cap room. They've got spending money. And Pat Riley, he knows he's got maybe another four or five years before he calls it quits. He wants another – Championship window there, and I absolutely hate it. And yeah, Gordon Hayward, come on down. Oh, God, no, they're gonna make a play for Miami. Is gonna make a play for Young, Miami, which they should. I mean, which, yeah, either him and or what you say, Bob. I hate Miami so much. I hate (laughs) them. They're just very well coached and and well thought put together, and even at they're nadir. They they'll, they'll somehow manage to be a 500 team that plays good, smart basketball. I hate them with the fire of a thousand suns. <laughs> I hate Miami. Well, see, I, I hate have them so much. I I, I have flashbacks because if we do get a Miami Boston Eastern Conference Finals, I have flashbacks to essentially LeBron shutting the Celtics championship window shut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was actually, I went to that game with with a friend of mine who is the only actual Miami Heat fan that I've ever met in my life. Are you um, talking about Game Six? Yeah, I went to the game. Oh, we went God. and watched Game Six together, and like that was unreal. That was just, uh, and you know, I wore a I wore a Dwayne Wade jersey to make my friend feel better. I, I showed solidarity. It was fun rooting for an extremely good player. I don't get to do that often as a Knicks fan. That was fun. I enjoyed. It. I was like, yeah, I'll root for Miami this time because I hate Boston. Also. I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, go drink and cry now. It was just that that performance by LeBron in that game was the most dominant. I mean, you know, we see amazing things in the NBA and amazing performances, and like the shit that Dame Lillard was pulling for the last month has been unreal, but. I don't think I've ever seen a player 
not to use an incredibly tired sports writing cliche, but exert his will the way LeBron did in that game. He just went to this place where you're not, he's like, no, you're, you're not going to beat me. I'm going to win this. You can't stop me. And I don't really care that you can't stop me. We haven't seen that since the 86 Celtics. Yeah. He was him. Okay, Bill Simmons. I was going to say, I was wondering who was going to get that. Continue. (laughs) Him going ham like that, that was, it was just an unreal thing to watch. I was like blown away by that. Um, The, yeah, I'm trying to think of like another performance where you're like, oh my God, what is he doing? We saw it from like Steph Curry a couple of times. Yeah, there are a couple of times when Steph Curry just would 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 just explode, and even to a, to a lesser extent, Kawhi. But the way that Kawhi beats people is so it's so perfectly Kawhi and workmanlike, and like I'm going to do the absolute bare minimum needed to succeed in this moment, and then I'm going to show up when I need to and, eat them, and sit in the corner and then eat apples because it's apple time. Um, you guys remember the Apple Time story, the fake Apple Time story? It was on Twitter at the beginning of 2018. I thought that was a Kawhi fake guy. story. It's a fake story. It's my favorite fake Kawhi. Like, someone posted what, what looked like an excerpt from a long-form profile of Kawhi Leonard, and it's completely fictional. They made it up. And the theme is that uh, Popovich and the Spurs are gathering for lunch, and Kawhi Leonard shows up with a huge bag of apples and sits by himself at a table and just starts sitting there doodly eating one apple after another. And so Popovich asked him, like, oh, we're going to have lunch. What, what's up? He goes, and Kawhi just says, apple time, apple time. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like someone put, put some thought into like making it look like a, a screenshot from like a Lee Jenkins article, but it wasn't. It was all... Fake, but the Kawhi Leonard, the Kawhi Leonard Apple Time story is really perfect because Kawhi Leonard can will do dominant game altering shit, and it just somehow makes you feel a little sleepy, like you should take a nap, and that's a style thing, and it's 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 absolutely it it should no way and take take like take away from what he he can do as a, as a player, but it's just not that kind of. Steph Curry going crazy, running around screens, or LeBron hitting the turbo boost when he drives down the lane. It's it's a different. It's a question of style, and which is why I think people love Dame because that shit was audacious as hell. That was just fuck you. I'm scoring like him screaming out, put some respect on my name. We're like we're all putting respect on your name right now. Everyone is doing that. You don't need to say it out loud. But it was just awesome and cool and fun. I love that. That was awesome. Well, in any case, where were we? Fuck the Miami Heat. Yes, that's where we were. That's where we were. Um, where we can go to wrap up here, um, Bob, one of your favorites yeah. um, during your early 30s, roaming the streets of Brooklyn, passed away. Uh, Mets legend Tom Seaver. Uh, what was your favorite I moment of watching him throughout so your adult life? I hate you. I hate you so much. <laughs> I hate you. Is my answer. I spent my early 30s watching Tom Seaver at the polo ground thinking, I hate Chase Thomas. Chase Thomas sucks. That's my thought. <laughs> uh, that didn't answer my question, uh, though. Do you just, or, or I mean, yes. how are you coping? How, what, it's like, what, day five I since have, he's been gone? It, it was, you are, you are, you are, this is very sad, Chase, and using it as a cheap play to own me really speaks to your ill character is my memory of Tom Seaver is thinking how much Chase Thomas sucks. It's sad. People love Tom Seaver. We got a nice note even from soon to be Mets owner um, and hedge fund sleazebag, Steve Cohen, who, who talked about going like compare who basically talked about watching Tom Seaver pitch like it was Matt Harvey day. For, for people who want to reference from the last 10 years, which, yes, I can recall in my at, in my dotage. Thank you very much. Um, I don't. I don't. Like, literally, I remember wa- like being a kid, watching the 86 World Series, and having my dad say, that's Tom Seaver, when he was inactive and sort of sitting at the end of the bench. That's my Tom Seaver memory. Fuck you, Chase Thomas and the Miami Heat. 
Well, Andrew, I'm done. Yeah, I think that's how we can leave it. If I don't get a fuck you, Chase Thomas from Bob Silverman, I wouldn't know when to end this podcast. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, honestly, like I've I'm a huge nut for sports history and and kind of seeing how things became, you know, how we got to certain points. And, you know, well, Bob's your guy for all of this as he, he lived it. Oh. Um, <laughs> but you know, no, but when it comes to Tom, I'm Siebert, giving you the double bird right now, so no <laughs> one can see it. <laughs> but you know, when, when it comes to Tom, when it comes to Tom Seaver, you you, you got to talk about a guy who was absolutely. If you want to talk about like a '60s '70s pitcher. Like that is the prototype, um, the look, the demeanor, you know, just kind of enough to capture Madison Avenue, but also Main Street. Uh, and, and one of the things that I was always impressed with with Tom Seaver is he wasn't much of a talker, you know, like well, he, he, he wouldn't trash talk, but he would definitely let you know how he felt. And I feel like in an era where that's maybe not, maybe not as uh, praised in major league baseball, everybody kind of sounds the same. He was his own man. And and, and one of the things that I, I definitely, uh, I was reading up on um, when they had the uh, Tom Seaver documentary by uh, FS1 last year is just kind of how, you know, he was basically just kind of he was at war with the uh, with Mets ownership. And then essentially everybody, everybody in the city backed him. And then when he uh, was traded to the Reds, how that was just a super dark day and how his return, even though it wasn't you know great in New York, he was still beloved. And I wish I could have seen him pitch and wish I could have, you know, had a chance to actually cover him. Uh, you know, if if I could go back in time, that's one guy I would definitely like to uh, uh, to cover and and, and get some uh, some solid quotes from. There you go. Well, what can we uh, check out from you guys in the Daily Beast and the Tacoma News Tribune? And then uh, I think uh, Andrew's got a new mm-hmm. podcast that he wants to talk about. But uh, Bob, oh, no. what can we check from you? Uh, I got. What can we check for me? Uh, uh, I have. I'm trying to think. I got a story coming up this week on um, how beat reporters' lives have changed uh, while in lockdown, which should be a fun one. I got some cool interviews with some of your favorite NBA beat guys, none of whom are, are down in the bubble. Um, so that should be Wednesday, Thursday, maybe. That's coming up soon in the Daily Beast. Andrew, what about you? Uh, I will be debuting my new podcast into the archives with Aham on Monday morning. So be on the lookout for that. I will be uh, wrapping up the editing process uh, today and tomorrow. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what I've got going on. All right. Well, go check that out when it drops, go read Bob's pieces. Um, I think he still gets them delivered. Um, like in his front, I think he's still he, he's not like familiar with the whole the the, the technologically advanced society. So he I think he actually still has been using the typewriter and been um, getting his his pieces from the Daily Beast mailed yeah, to let's, him. Let's let's do the let's do the podcast next week as long as your mom says it's okay. Okay, how about that? How about that, Thomas? Oh my God, we're doing that today. Bring All my right, mother into this. I really struck a nerve, Bob. That's right. Just, after just, my uh, just yell up from the basement and tell her that you that you want your hot pockets. Wow, Debbie Thomas out of this, sir. Leave Deborah out of this. Tell Deborah she tell Deborah to call me. I, uh, we we have some things to talk. Well, she's gonna be. I'm gonna see her in like two hours. Like I said, they're they're here this weekend. Um, so I'll I'll, I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up, and I'll be like, remember uh, Bob? Like he's a uh, he's a little older than you guys. I think he's like one of my fourth oh. dads. Boy, boy. Wow. Hanging up now. Going away. (laughs) Bye, guys. Have a great weekend. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a friend of the podcast, 
I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.